the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And welcome to the program. Great to have you on board. It is Tuesday, the Ides of January. Is there such a thing? Well, the Ides of March, the 15th of March. I'll have to look into that. At any rate, <laughs> welcome to the program. Great to have you with us. Be careful out there as you might be heading to hither and yon. Understand that the weather between hither and yon is a bit rainy today. We're due in for lots of Bay Area rain tomorrow and looks like the start of it tonight. We'll keep you abreast of traffic. Michael Bennett is hanging out in the KFAX Traffic Center this evening and a pretty jam-packed program for you coming up later on tonight. Hour number two, we're going to be joined by syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek of the ever-popular Bob Zadek Show. We'll talk a bit about the year that was, a look back on some of the uh, important accomplishments that was brought to us during 2018 and what the year ahead looks like. We'll get to that conversation a little bit later on. Also, controversy in Sacramento. I know this comes as a tremendous surprise to you that the um, California Department of Education is trying to foist more extreme liberal agendas in the arena of sex education on children as young as first grade. What would that be, Jarrell? Six years old? Yeah, about six years old. Would never kid you. Straight-laced. Just the facts. Nothing but the facts. So we'll talk a bit about what's going on and what you can do to respond to it. That's as constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus joins us later on in this hour. We'll also get you an update on the Mueller investigation. And uh, meanwhile, as we lead off the conversation tonight, let's take a look at a bit of news. The IRS is going back to work. Not going to get paid for it, but they are apparently being recalled. Thousands of furloughed workers to handle tax refunds. The 46,000 IRS employees will be working without pay during the government shutdown. The IRS planning to dole out refunds during the shutdown, but will not perform other functions like audits. It is the longest shutdown so far in history. Let's talk about what this means, how long will it last, and who are some of the losers and who are potential winners in all of this. Joining us, Washington Times conservative political pundit and writer, Dr. Larry Fidoa. And Dr. Fidoa, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you. Well, we've uh, certainly gone into the history books in reaching the longest shutdown in U.S. history. What's your thought? Uh, They're inside the Beltway. Uh, If you talk to the Democrats, they say the Republicans are going to stand nothing but to lose in this. If you talk to the Republicans, they say the same is true for the Democrats. And I guess, as usual, somewhere in between lies the truth. And I guess at least short term, uh, there aren't many winners, but a lot of losers, especially if you get a check from the federal government. Well, that's a fact. Um, there, There is talk. But it's very quiet talk 
uh, of compromise and of trying to get some kind of a deal together. And frankly, the rumor that we're hearing is that uh, Schumer and, and Trump already had had made a deal. And uh, actually, uh, uh, Pelosi was involved, too. This is back in December. But uh, when she got... Uh, she got elected as the new speaker. Uh, she backed out of the deal, and she's just absolutely uh, obsessed with the idea of uh, uh, opposing anything Trump wants to do. So right now, that's apparently where things, nobody, it seems like nobody in the Democrat Party is willing to uh, step out of line and, uh, and start trying to make something happen. And so far, she has an iron grip on them. But there's, of course, a lot of a lot of talk that that's not going to last forever. So, well, and we we certainly hope not. As we look at not only many of the departments that are suffering, but ultimately uh, the families that are now one solid paycheck uh, short of the government. And you know, if it if it lasts another day or two, they can they can probably bounce back. Okay, if this thing continues to drag on, it'll become more and more challenging for those that are living paycheck to paycheck. One of the things that seems to strike me here, uh, Dr. Fidelwein, looking at this is on the heels of the victory in November for Democrats coming off of that election, they, they certainly seem to be filled with vim and vinegar. Uh, they remember last November, but seemingly, at least for the moment, they forget that November is going to roll around again. And in two years time, there's going to be another major accounting to be paid. Is that an accurate observation that there uh, there's an awful lot of feeling they're at the moment, but not much thought or or consideration being given to how this may play out at the ballot box in two years? Well, I would never accuse a Washington politician of not thinking about the uh, next election. <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, but there is, there, there's, there's the, uh, apparently, it's, it's, it's a little hard to get this, uh, get this really straight, but what we're hearing is that there's getting it. There's increasing uh, uh, dissatisfaction in the uh, in the Democrat uh, ranks, and it's, the, the senators are a little bit more uh, likely to talk about it. Apparently, but um, there's just uh, there's this whole idea of just putting your entire future into obstruction has gotten pretty old. You know, they've been doing it now for two years and. Uh, it's getting uh, to the point where they're beginning to feel like maybe they should have some kind of positive, uh, something positive to talk about. So that, but that's not, you know, that's not something you can take to the bank. It's just sort of uh, underground at the moment. It's just a hard situation to, to predict, really. And it would almost seem, if we just step back and look at the pure politics of it, uh, for the moment at least ignoring, not to negate, but to ignore at least for a moment some of the principle that's at play here. It almost seems as if at the extremes, both sides are playing to their individual bases, but it really is the middle that's going to, in the end, make the decision, won't it? I mean, the centrists in America who can go either way, dependent upon how they're feeling, what's going on in their own personal economy, the national economy, et cetera, et cetera. When they go to the polls and they feel no particular allegiance to either party, they're just going to vote for whoever they think can get the job done best. 
that group in the middle, are, aren't they really the ones that are kind of getting ignored in all of this by the two extreme sides? Well, that's an ever-diminishing uh, crowd. Um, the, uh, but, yeah, that, I, I think that's, that's always a fairly safe statement. And frank, frankly, the, uh, the, the real centrist, uh, as far as being willing to talk and compromise, is actually the president himself. Uh, he's he's they have made now this is the third uh, detailed proposal that they have made uh, with um, w- to the Democrats and uh, this this little incident a couple days ago of uh, Trump supposedly uh, walking out what apparently really happened was that uh, he uh, started the meeting with Pelosi and uh, and Schumer by saying uh, you know we have been working all weekend uh, i've got every department in uh the in the government uh contributing and here is the deal that we have come out to offer you folks and uh if uh is there any chance that you would uh be willing to uh to uh, consider it and uh and and act on it and pelosi said no chance at all mm. And that's when he said, well, I guess there's no sense in talking then. So that's when he walked out. You know, but part of the irony in all of this is if we were talking about huge, unbelievable sums of money, if we were talking about dollars that would require portions of the government um, or, or uh, certain subsectors of the budget to suffer terribly, uh, were an agreement to be reached and the funds provided, you know, there might be an argument there saying, gee, we're $21 trillion in debt. This is going to make it $25 trillion. We have to exercise a little bit of um, fiscal restraint here. But, you know, the, the irony is the one thing that Congress has repeatedly demonstrated, both Democrat and Republican in recent years, and that is very little regard to impact on the federal deficit. And the irony, I guess, ultimately, when you look at the Annual the annual budget, um, five point something billion dollars is really chump change, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, when you remember that a trillion is a thousand times a billion, then uh, you start looking at the percentage of the trillion dollar budget. The actually, there's no calculator that has enough zeros on it to be able to make that percentage. It's so small. So this, this has nothing really to do with money. Um, it, this this is strictly a uh, power play. Yeah, it's it's politics. It's campaign rhetoric. It's I'm I'm not going to blink. I'm going to make you be the first one to blink. Or what's what's the old phrase in sales? Oh, that's right. First guy who talks loses. Let's find out who's going to do the talking here. If you've just joined us, we're talking with. Best-known Washington Times conservative pundit, political writer, Dr. Larry Fidoa. By the way, you can get in some insights on Larry's observations. He has literally written hundreds of um, columns for the Washington Times. You can check him out online at drlarryonline.com. Just abbreviate doctor, drlarryonline.com. When we come back, what of the question? Who will blink first? And is there any sense of either side having more at stake here than the other? Or is it just simply 800,000 federal workers that have the most to lose? We'll talk about that aspect of the ongoing battle over the wall and the government shutdown. Day 22, as Lifeline continues. 
517, let's check out traffic for you right now. We'll swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center, see who's blinked on the freeways and what the results are there. Michael Bennett, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation, and this is the reason why it's important to be able to read your own handwriting. I said a moment ago, day 22 of the shutdown. Actually, we're day 24, and in about uh, six hours and uh, eight minutes, we're going to switch over to day number 25 of the Washington, D.C. shutdown, thus far the longest in U.S. history. You know, level, you'd sing, can't these guys get their act together back in Washington, D.C., that there should never be a reason for a government shutdown? I mean, don't we send them to Washington, D.C. with the precise expressed purpose of making sure the government runs right? All these old (laughs) classic ideas from way back. We're visiting today with Washington Times conservative political writer Dr. Larry Fidoa. Larry, give me your sense in terms of how all this plays out. The optics, of course, at this moment don't look good, and there's plenty of blame to go all the the way around. You're suggesting there might be a little bit of behind-the-scenes discussion taking place that is not making it to the top of the news. Um, What is your sense, just of all of your years of watching politics in Washington, D.C., knowing the cast of characters as you do, if you had to put bet on it, would you hazard a guess as to who do you think is going to blink first here? You make me sound like Methuselah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that I think that there there are two two uh, factors here that that might turn out to be significant. One one is that the uh, National Association of Government Work uh, Government Government Workers is uh, a union of uh, the government uh, employees, which as government employees, by the way. Um, uh, they're uh, they're seven hundred thousand uh, strong. They they members of the of the union, and at at some point, which I think is going to start fairly soon, there's going to be a lot of agitation in federal in uh, union quarters, uh, saying that look, uh, we didn't give you all that money and support all these candidates to come in here and uh, make sure that we don't. Get our and allow us not to be paid for our work, and I think that's that's one factor that even Nancy Pelosi would have to listen to. Um, the other is that something un, something not directly related could come about and really make uh, everybody uh, get their nose off the ground and start looking at the sky. Um, one of one of which uh, an idea of which, for example, is. Uh, there was a report, um, about 150 pages, I guess, today, about the uh, the, the uh, progress of the Chinese military uh, technology. Yes, I heard about that. Yeah, and that that is a very scary situation, uh, particularly with respect to Taiwan. So, you know, if if something along that line, uh, either there or I suppose maybe an attack on Israel or or some something like that, could happen, or or another big storm or just some unrelated calamity, that that could make everybody stop, you know, concentrating so much on this particular dispute and uh, and start getting to work. 
but short of that, um, uh, it's very, very hard to to try to predict anything with uh, with any degree of certainty. And at the end, even when it finally does come to some sort of re- resolution, you know that both sides are going to attempt to, to claim victory. And, 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 and therefore, I think the reason why there's there's been such a line in the sand that has been drawn, now, as you point out, that line can get moved pretty quickly with a good gust of wind that rolls through. And, and you, you point to something that I think is is very, very troubling that unfortunately is not getting the kind of attention that it ought to be. It's easy to say, well, this is uh, conservatives against liberals, Democrats against Republicans. It's Congress fighting uh, the executive branch, vice versa. But, you know, at the end of the day, if this was just about Washington, just about borders, just about the wall, and there was nothing else going on that ought to be of concern, that'd be a different story. But meanwhile, you have to wonder uh, how much glee is being gained, how much sense of an aid and comfort in a fashion, is being given to our our enemies, uh, more current ones like communist China, and more traditional ones like uh, like Russia. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a very uh, dangerous world. Getting to be a very dangerous, I guess it always has been in one sense. But uh, we're we are, you know, I I know. Have you, have you heard of the uh, the hundred year marathon? Oh yes, and uh, you know we're. This is the first president in, I mean, that all began back about roughly 19, in the late 1980s. And this is the first president who has ever stood up to them, to the Chinese, and started uh, trying to call call them to account. And they just really hadn't known what to do about it. And in the meantime, their uh, their own overspending and, and priming of the... Uh, Devalue, continually devaluing the yuan. It's all starting to come home to roost, and their their economy is really starting to to uh, crack in pieces. So there's there there is there are situations that are potentially predictable that would make uh, uh, you know a totalitarian governments typically will try to start wars or at least skirmishes to take the minds of the people off of. Off of their problems. Bingo! You you just you just touched on the the, the key that is has been the note rather that has been played uh, by totalitarian regimes going back for time and memoriam. And you know uh, I've I've talked with economists on this program about the the potential impacts of Chinese uh, currency manipulation. It was largely in terms of the the sort of spillover impact on the strength of the U.S. dollar, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day recognizing the impact that it's having on their own economy. And when it goes from happy days are here again to brother, can you spare a dime? uh, That's going to put the regime and its new president for life in a very awkward position. And what do most totalitarian regimes do when they get placed in those very embarrassing, awkward positions and the folks at home are not happy? Quick, look over there and create a distraction somewhere else. And suddenly now the Taiwan Straits is in the news or, you know, the Chinese are engaging in uh, firing shots over somebody's bow. And before you know it, a little skirmish can turn into something pretty serious. Well, think North Korea. Hmm. The, The... As long as the Chinese were all uh, friendly and smiling, uh, that, that that situation between uh, Americans and the North Koreans 
really started to, was starting to uh, progress very nicely. And then they got into this uh, trade of standoff, and suddenly the uh, Korean situation seemed to freeze up, and uh, they didn't. It, it, we don't know for sure, but it sure sounds like that there's a uh, uh, definite uh, problem now with the uh, uh, the uh, dictator of uh, of North Korea saying that he's he all oh, he didn't ever agree that they wouldn't do anything until that that the uh, that the Americans wouldn't take the sanctions off until he was all done. No, all, he's now saying, well, we got started, and that's that's when it's supposed to have. You know, in other words, he's making up reasons why why uh, this whole thing is starting to get tense again. Well, I think and most political observers would, would calculate that he's largely the, uh, Beijing's lapdog, and he's going to exactly. do their bidding, and, uh, you know, he's quite beholden to them, because let's face it, no other country wants to engage in trade or tolerate them, and, and China's got a number of reasons uh, to, uh, to do so, not least of which is the notion that Kim has historically been a very convenient rock in the shoe of America, and why wouldn't they want to exploit that to their benefit? Well, they don't even have, you know, they, they, they're, they're just putting a little pressure on now, and that's one of the levers of pressure. But you were saying, you know, to get a, get some kind of a skirmish going. Well, that right there is, is really, really uh, poised to uh, be, uh, be the, the lead. And the other problem, of course, is Taiwan. And, uh, you know, there have already been... Uh, Rockets fired from the Chinese mainland and from Korea over Taiwan, and uh, so my, I guess my concern is that uh, we, that time that we were thinking about uh, Chi uh, standing, uh, turning to uh, getting a little bit of distraction for his people, might just be now. I mean, when better time to take advantage of the Americans than when they're all fighting among themselves? Yep, and uh, that could uh, that could create pretty serious problems not only for the United States but certainly for many of our allies there uh, in Asia, not least of which includes our allies Japan that have been dealing with China and dispute over who owns a series of islands, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, there, there's nothing worse than for us to take our eye off the ball, and in doing so, boom! All of a sudden, the other side comes in, runs down. Uh, for the touchdown, and as the crowd is cheering, we're going, wait, what happened? What did we miss? And that, I think, is maybe the most important thing that we've learned today from our conversation with Washington Times political writer Dr. Larry Fidoa. Dr. Fidoa, we appreciate the, the time and the insights. I know I asked some tough questions and tried to force you to pull out your, your uh, get your crystal ball off the shelf. Uh, these are hard, hard issues to try and grapple with because of uh, the, the seemingly continuing changing of the mind of uh, many of the participants here. And I appreciate you taking some time today to try to kind of pull back the curtain on Washington, D.C. and give us at least a little bit of a better understanding. Dr. Larry Fidoa, Information available again on the web on his observations and musings. DrLarryOnline.com. Just abbreviate doctor. DrLarryOnline.com. 5.32 from the mighty KFAX. And uh, we're not going to leave Washington, D.C. quite yet. Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about the pronouncement today by the appointee for the next attorney general who said, no, unless something serious goes on, unless there's cause... 
he would leave the Mueller investigation alone. Let's find out uh, some insights on that as political commentator, columnist, and talk show host Karen Ketteline joins us. Right now, though, Michael Bennett joins us with a look at your Tuesday ride home. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. During some confirmation hearings today in Washington, D.C., I mean, the government's shut down, but at least Congress is putting up a little bit of a facade here that they're getting work done. Today, Attorney General nominee William Barr indicating during his testimony he would refuse a presidential direction to fire special counsel Robert Mueller without cause. That statement was made during his Senate confirmation hearing, Barr saying he wants Mueller to complete the investigation of Russian influence on the 2016 presidential campaign. He also said he would not edit or otherwise alter Mueller's final report. That final report, Mueller is obligated to submit to the Attorney General. Barr, by the way, was Attorney General during the George H.W. Bush administration in the early 1990s. Join us Talk a bit about where things stand with the Trump-Russia investigation is con- commentator, columnist, and talk show host Karen Cataline. Karen has op-eds that can be seen in everything from Investors Business Daily to the Western Journal, Town Hall, and, of course, Daily Caller and Front Page Mag. And, Karen, great to have you on the program. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks well, for having me. Here we are. There has been an extension now given to the uh, the impaneled grand jury that they can keep working for another six months. Um, I, I would suppose if this was a uh, terribly involved investigation where you could say, yeah, two years, that's about right. Uh, many look at this on the surface and say, what exactly is involved here, that it is taking the Mueller team so long to uncover whatever it is they are looking for. And then if you would, Karen, maybe you can juxtapose that to the other investigation. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, the other investigation that doesn't exist. And that is why many of the reasons that Trump is being investigated are not the same good, valid reasons that Clinton ought to be investigated. Well, you know, I like to just sort of cut to the chase, Craig. And uh, I think this investigation is being extended. I never thought it would end. I don't think it will end because this investigation is being used to cover up the, the investigation of which you speak. That way they don't have to answer questions. They cannot, uh, they can use this investigation as an excuse not to have anybody ask them about anything, and I frankly don't think that they love Hillary Clinton that much. I just think she represents uh, the cover to their own misdeeds and evil doings. Well, there certainly is an awful lot of influence here of a power base that that seems to just defy the imagination. I mean, uh, we've seen in in recent uh, weeks here, just prior to uh, Christmas, the Trump um, Foundation closed down. And yet I've always thought it very interesting that during the tenure of Hillary Clinton, while she was first the junior senator from New York and later secretary of state, nobody asked questions about conflicts of interest. Nobody questioned uh, the optics of that organization receiving multimillion dollar donations from um 
quite frankly, uh, some questionable characters on the world political stage and countries for that matter uh, to the Clinton Foundation at the same time that Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, is engaged in negotiations for one thing or another. That that was never brought into question. And I just I find it very ironic that at no point did anybody really sit down seriously and say, you know what? Fair is fair in love and war. If we're going to investigate Trump, at least we ought to do is investigate Hillary, too. Yeah, well, that would be if there was any fairness whatsoever in this whole silly charade. Uh, if if Trump weren't, weren't uh, in office, we wouldn't have known about any of this to begin with. And I think they are desperately trying to clamp down some of the stuff that we already know. I don't think we were supposed to know half the stuff that we do now, and that Fox News, which is not as conservative sometimes as I wish it were, compared to how liberal some of the other networks are, is the only one that consistently reports it. Uh, And it's no accident whatsoever that the very things that Trump is being accused of, with no evidence and no facts, and nothing to back it up, is precisely what Hillary and the left and the Democrat and the DNC and on and on and on did. If you were to explain this to somebody from maybe another planet who spoke our language, they would say, oh, you're just wearing a tinfoil hat. Hmm. You couldn't possibly make this stuff up. And yet it's true. I had on this program last week Jerome Corsi, who, of course, has been a subject of the Mueller investigation. He has spent 60-something hours in uh, discussions over the course of five or six lengthy sessions uh, with the Mueller team answering questions. He may yet be indicted. That continues to be a cloud hanging over his head. One of the questions that I asked him in the course of our conversation was one that he really didn't have a clear answer on. Uh, Maybe all we can do is speculate. But let me ask you this, Karen from your viewpoint. Um, Over the course of this entire time of discussions regarding collusion, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, the emails that were uh, gained by whatever means and by whomever, Gossifer 2.0 or they fell out of the sky by accident, uh, the Podesta emails, ironically, while there's been much debate about how they were gotten, who exchanged them, who made them public. Isn't it, do you find it ironic, as I do, that there has never yet once been any contesting of the validity of the Podesta emails, nor of any of the content? Never once have they said, oh, this is all made up, this is all being done by the Onion. They've never done that. They've just concentrated on whether or not somebody may have or, or benefited politically from all of this. Isn't there some irony to that? I could not agree more, Craig, and I would add to that that I have never, in the time that I've been watching politics, which is, you know, considerable, but not as long as some, I have never seen such blatantness with regard to what you're talking about. They're not even trying to give the pretense of fairness or, uh, you know, this, this equality that they always talk about. They really never, ever even mention some of the stuff that um, other networks do. I mean, one network, actually. One network and talk radio are the only people that talk about uh, the kind of evidence that shows that Hillary Clinton was indeed uh, uh, engaging in high-level corruption 
all the things they mentioned, from collusion to actually colluding with Russians. I mean, don't you think it's interesting, too, that the left doesn't remember what it stood for last Thursday? Uh, or at least a couple decades ago, they used to be really pretty happy with the Russians. Now, all of a sudden, they're willing to turn on the Russians on a, on a dime because it fits the narrative they want to tell right now. Yeah, and they see, make, no, I, I, make no pretenses about it. I, I, I guess this is going to demonstrate what an old guy I am when I can remember the duck cover and hold drills in school. Uh, I was raised to believe that then the Soviet Union uh, and today it's basically the same outfit, just, uh, you know, some different names, uh, but that it is our number one enemy. And I was shocked and horrified when it became public that Hillary Clinton, as secretary of state, had approved the sale of uranium to Russia, the same stuff that they can make nuclear weapons with. That isn't a conflict of interest. That doesn't put the United States uh, at jeopardy. But the possibility of Donald Trump staying in a hotel in Moscow, that does. I mean, this, this, this sense of duplicitness is what bothers me. I mean, look, we either decide collectively as Americans that this country, Russia, and its leader, Vladimir Putin, are threats to American democracy, or they're not. Which is it? Well, like everything that the left does, it's situational ethics and uh, whatever fits their narrative and their political agenda at the time. I mean, I always use the example, and I'm probably close to your age and <laughs> not afraid to admit it. Uh, you know, in the 70s, which isn't all that long ago, I remember when uh, it was I am woman, hear me roar. And now it's I am woman, hear me whine. I am the victim of men and they're shoving women back into gilded cages. And unfortunately, their audience are people who have no conception whatsoever of history. Uh, but to go back to your point about Hillary selling 20% of our uranium, when I think about that on a much, much, much smaller scale, you know, when you take something that doesn't belong to you and you sell it for your own personal gain, that's called theft and fencing stolen goods, isn't it? It's like, how did she get away with that? Especially in plain view. It's in plain view. Everybody knows it, and still she's not being prosecuted for it. I think that's what the grassroots are so are tearing their hair out about. That's what makes us crazy, is that kind of thing. We know it. We know they know it, but they don't care. And we know they don't care. How about that for a story? And and meanwhile, while the Trump and I and I'm not saying this as, as somebody who's trying to to uh, endorse the Trump uh, Foundation, uh, you know, it was probably largely there as a tax write-off anyway. But that said, here we sit with the Trump Foundation shut down, and yet the Clinton Foundation still up and running, still dragging in. Well perhaps a bit less these days since she has far less influence to pedal, but still uh, garnering about $142 million a year in donations and, and still, uh, according to the most recent statistics available, uh, having assets of some half billion dollars. And all of this is under the guise of humanitarian aid? Really? Well, I think you'll find, at least I've read, that uh, the Trump Foundation actually did engage in charitable activities, whereas the Clinton, the so-called Clinton Foundation, 
was merely a money laundering operation. Well, certainly That's helped apparently to uh, create quite the nice wedding for uh, for the daughter. There's never been anybody to to uh, to co- investigate that or engage in an IRS audit and call that into question. Now, has there? No, not at all. And yet they can parse every single word Trump says. See, I guess they tried to make it look as if the reason Trump is colluding with Russia is because he made a joke. I mean, they were planning it all along, I think, in retrospect. But remember when he made a joke during the campaign about how maybe they should, uh, uh, maybe Russia should find out what happened to her emails? That was a joke, and they used that as a means to launch an investigation, which we know now was a, uh, the, um, uh, what did Strzok call it? The, um, oh, Whatever. Oh, the witch hunt? It, it was the uh, insurance policy. Oh, the insurance policy, the yes. insurance policy. I mean, the level of corruption is so in your face. And I do believe, as we started out with this whole thing, that, and it's a fascinating, it's probably the, the biggest corruption story in our lifetimes, easy. And what's so amazing is they're using this, not only this Mueller investigation, not only to keep the pressure on Trump, but to keep the pressure off themselves. Well, by whatever means and however level of manipulation may have taken place here, uh, one, one thing for sure, uh, it, it's helped to uh, contribute to uh, crippling, not every aspect certainly, but crippling some aspects of this presidency and and meanwhile uh, allow another almost presidency to never be called to answer for anything other than some simple hearings you know did you clean your email server oh what you mean like with a dust rag ha 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 it it's scary and i think what what i find problematic about this is look if both sides have been accused of robbing banks then let's let's investigate and let's find out at the end of the day, though, what we want to say here is, well, you rob Bank of America and I rob Wells Fargo. We don't like rob. We don't like Wells Fargo, so that's okay. What? I mean, that's the way some of this is being justified, and it just simply makes no sense at all. Our thanks to uh, Karen Cataline for uh, helping to shed at least a little bit of light as to what's going on here. And, you know, this is going to continue to play itself out. And perhaps, as she suggested, there may be no end in sight, although I think... It's going to be difficult six months from now when the grand jury has run its final course and it cannot be re-upped yet again. There cannot be another six-month extension, which means having to impanel a whole new jury and present the evidence all over again from the very beginning. Then maybe by then this fine will either A, run its course, B, charges will be brought up, or we'll learn that there's been an awful lot to do about nothing. Uh, At the end of the day, sadly, the ones that really lose, no matter what your political persuasion is or your opinion of Trump or Clinton, the ones that really lose here, the American people. Karen Cataline, thank you for being with us today. And uh, again, you can read more about her musings that are seen daily in uh, many prestigious publications such as Investors, Business Daily, Town Hall, The Daily Caller, Front Page, Mag, uh, at all. You can find her online at Karen Cataline. That's K-A-T-A-L-I-N-E dot com. All right. 
5.51. Darrell says you got to step aside here because we got to get updated on some traffic. Always trying to run the show from that side of the glass, aren't you? My goodness, some people are just not content with pressing buttons. He wants to press mine, too. <laughs> okay, let's see if he can press this button and bring up Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're going to get to our next guest, but first we're going to get to a giveaway here. Caller number 11 and 12 at 888-367-5329, 367 What are we giving away? Well, more evidence the show has gone to the dogs. Of course, if you've been a longtime listener, you already knew that. <laughs> We've got copies of the book, A Dog's Way Home, number three at the box office, by the way. The new film this week, a remarkable story of one dog's enduring journey home after she was separated from her owner. With 400 miles of dangerous Colorado wilderness, Bella sets off on a seemingly impossible and completely unforgettable adventure home. The film is out based on the book. We're giving away copies of the book to callers number 11 and 12 at 888-367-5329. That's 888 367 Five three two nine callers eleven and twelve call now and it's yours. All right. Not only is the show going to the dogs, apparently aspects of public education here in California are too. Uh, there is once again an effort here in the so-called California Health Education Framework to 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 not only invade many of the, the, the principles that families try to teach their kids at a young age about um, human sexuality and, and, and the like, uh, but push things to a younger and younger and younger age. Now, you know, I realize that children tend to unwittingly become sexualized much sooner in our society today. That's largely because of everything from the Internet to uh, Madison Avenue and uh, the, the weakening of uh, public morals. But is, is it really important to be teaching kindergartners issues concerning gender dysphoria? Really? A four- or five-year-old needs to be read into this? State Department of Education thinks so. We're joined next by Brad Dacus, President and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. And I, I, I got to want has Planned Parenthood just taken over the whole show up there in, in Sacramento, uh, a counselor, that this kind of stuff is, is making its way into the proposed health education framework for California public schools? Planned Parenthood definitely has a, a major role in this, as well as the California Teachers Association, the Teachers Union, and um, and in the, the LGBTQ uh, radical uh, activists, uh, uh, they're all working on this this very very controversial curriculum from promoting it. Um, and we at Pacific Justice Institute have weighed in on it as well uh, in terms of uh, our comments and objections. Uh, you were absolutely right when you mentioned Planned Parenthood, uh, because on chap on chapter five of the curriculum, page twenty seven. It explicitly references Planned Parenthood, saying that schools are recommended to have Planned Parenthood as a guest speaker in seventh, eighth grade classes to teach, of other things, sex health education. Um, that is hardly the, the entity I would want teaching my seventh and eighth grader about sex education. Well, free advertising for them at, at, the, at the cost of uh, uh, public education. Well, the one, the one that I'm really stuck on is a chapter 3, pages 43 and 44, where, and I'm quoting here, 
K through three, that would be kindergartners through third grade students, taught to reject gender stereotypes and agree, and I'm quoting here, that their, quote, gender assigned at birth, close quote, does not limit how they may choose to identify and express themselves. I tell you what, if I've got a, um, a kindergartner in my house, uh, that child shouldn't be even thinking about such issues at that age, and yet they want to work this into the curriculum? Really? Yeah. In fact, you know, children, especially in the elementary school level, the younger they are, um, the more they're working through gender identity, affirming gender identity, femininity, masculinity, uh, that whole process, this throws a wrench of confusion, of, uh, of destruction in, in terms of making it more difficult for these kids to work through that. Left alone, a child who has gender identity dysphoria, it's a mental condition, um, left alone, more than 70% will work through it naturally by the time they hit puberty, junior high. Well, this just makes it more difficult for them to work through it. It adds confusion. It doesn't take away confusion. So if at the, if at the age of six, I'm turning back the clock here, if at the age of six most of my classmates were pretty good at knocking the ball around, did okay in baseball and uh, flag football and so forth, and I was horrible at it, um, and somebody jokingly said, well, you know, Craig hits the, the ball like a girl, uh, instead of saying, no, Craig is just not athletically inclined, and he'll survive, instead we could say, what? Well, maybe he actually is a girl, maybe he's more, uh, you know, in touch with his feminine side, and therefore shouldn't be forced to have to, to play into the stereotypes of masculinity. I mean, is, is this really what we're headed toward? Yeah, absolutely. That's actually an excellent, real example for so many uh, children who, uh, you know, boys and girls who don't fit as much into the mainstream based on their skills or what they do. This creates greater doubt and hesitation to those students who have the greatest vulnerability for such doubt and hesitation and, and potential confusion. So, so instead it's, of allowing a, 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 a first-grade boy to just either A, have some time to develop some athletic skills, uh, or if in my case, if they could have predicted, would have said, you know what, if he lives to be a 1,000, if Babe Ruth is coaching him, he's never going to be good at hitting the ball because that's not where God gifted me, and that's okay. Instead, what we want to do is let's, let's create an environment where the children suddenly are now questioning their very gender. So we take what should be a very easy situation to say, yeah, he's no good at baseball. Oh, well. And instead, we, 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 we create all of this doubt and confusion and chaos in the child's mind. Exactly. And, and there are lots uh, of kids who fall on that part of the bell curve that will be definitely uh, impacted in a major way. And I want people to understand that if a child affirms and solidifies this dysphoria and becomes a transgender person, as and that's the, the where they, they end up after adolescence, um, that child or young adult uh, will, uh, will likely not live to see their 30th birthday. That is a worse uh, mortality rate than, on average than someone who gets cancer. So that is why it is so hideous that they should do anything that in any way 
uh, is uh, lacks compassion and, and true understanding for the real needs of these kids. Well, and let me just add in here that, you know, I, I, as you were talking, it went through my mind that a lot of this seems to, to rise to the occasion of, of, of abuse of children. But oddly, oddly, the curricula, they've covered that topic. For the benefit of 7th and 8th graders in Chapter 5, pages 37, lines 9, 57, and following, 7th and 8th grade students are taught to view religious boundaries of sexual activity and views on gender as a form of spiritual abuse. So if you say to your 7th grade kid, look, um, we're not going to spend the afternoon teaching you how to put a prophylactic on a banana, uh, that's not appropriate behavior for a 13-year-old. I'd rather you wait until you are married. And in the meanwhile, you know, let's, uh, let's engage in a science project or something. Distract the child and get them focusing on things that 13-year-olds ought to be focused on. No, instead they say that if your particular belief system suggests that uh, children, for example, should not engage in, in premarital sex and you wish to teach that, this curriculum is going to say, oh, no, to a 7th or 8th grade child, that's spiritual abuse. Really? So now the state is going to decide what spiritual abuse is? Oh, yes, and here's what's really bad about it. That word abuse has a heavy legal meaning. That word abuse is justification for the government through Child Protective Services to permanently remove that child from that loving Christian uh, faith-based family. Uh, that is how diabolical this this language is, uh, in this part is, and I think it's actually the worst part of this uh, uh, education curriculum that's, that's being under consideration. You know, the, the irony is that, uh, as, as we'll hear from my next guest, there are some things that the states should absolutely be doing, bar none, and then there are other things like this that the states have no business involved with whatsoever. Brad Dacus, we appreciate the update to this proposed health education framework, and uh, you can get full details if you go to the Pacific Justice website at uh, pji.org and uh, take a look at uh, what is there. They go into uh, greater detail than we've had the opportunity to do so on tonight's program. And again, that is the proposed health education framework. You can get some insights as to exactly what they're proposing to do in moving this into the California State Educational Framework. Absolutely remarkable. Some of the stuff you told me this 10 years ago, I'd say, you're lying, you're making it up. This is a page out of a Tom Clancy book. <laughs> Today it's front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. All right, our thanks to Brad Dacus with the Pacific Justice Institute. Six o'clock or ish. <laughs> We're a little late, aren't we? Here, let's see what's going on in the six o four ish time, and uh, we'll lead off with some traffic. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.